Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou huri-huri. He ho tākei e pāna ki a papatūnuku tangaroa me ranginui. This is our changing rule on RNZ National, and you can stay in touch with us on Twitter at RNZ underscore science and Facebook at Our Changing World RNZ. Finally, on Our Changing World tonight, we sit down for a chat with the chief scientists of New Zealand and Australia. Alan Finkel, an engineer, entrepreneur and philanthropist, took up his post as Australia's chief scientist earlier this year. And during a recent New Zealand visit, he met our own chief science advisor, Sir Peter Gluckman. At a Trans-Tasman celebration at the Australian High Commission, Veronica got to ask both of them how the two countries could work together for the good of science and innovation. I've been asked by the Australian government to lead the process of planning our big expensive research equipment, the research infrastructure, for the next decade to decade and a half. It's a multi-billion dollar investment. And the New Zealand science community has been involved in some of those things in the past. You mentioned the synchrotron. We have an opportunity to build out a lot of science kit. And in the past, Some of them have lent themselves to being multinodal, where we'd have the same kind of investment being built in Brisbane and Adelaide and Melbourne. For example, semiconductor fabrication. Wouldn't it be great if going forward, where there's a multinodal opportunity, we could include New Zealand in that? Because you get the economies of scale. If you're setting up four operating facilities of the one kind, Everybody benefits by going from one to two to three to four. But, of course, there are many other possibilities than that. We already have excellent research relationships. As Peter said, a huge number of papers published by New Zealand scientists and Australian scientists have shared authorship. But can we facilitate that with our granting agencies, sort of really recognising the right to apply for a grant across the Tasman, Can we identify sectors where we want to engage? Uh, Peter and I were talking today about um, agricultural IT. I think what we're trying to do in the discussion is on one hand look at what you might call structural relationships. How do we actually make the the, the strategic interests of the two countries and scientific technology work together? For example, it could be as upstream as sharing technology assessment and horizon scanning, which is an important but difficult skill. Or it can be, as Alan said, an infrastructure where at least for the first time in our history, actually, we're heading towards a proper science and technology infrastructure plan. And so it fits very nicely in doing some joint planning with Australia. Does it mean getting our research funding agencies to work together? Can we actually do joint assessment? and reduce the cost and increase the quality of our assessment in some areas. And then we've got the thematic side. What do we do together in actual areas like agri-tech, like in some aspects of IT? We're already going to have to work very closely together in IT because of the SKA. We have to. I mean, that's where the potential upside 
of this large radio telescope is, is in the technologies that flow from it. The options are enormous. What we've got to do is be sensible, be prudent, and identify the things that will be genuinely win-win for both of us. And that requires a bit of work. Can I just add one, one yeah. little thing? Go for it. Um, some good, honest plagiarism. We don't have a national strategy plan in Australia, and you guys have some fantastic long-term plans in place. And so I'm devouring them, I'm reading them, and I'm going to learn a lot more about them. We have been asked by the government to develop a national strategy plan. So in this case, it's a one-way flow. We'll take what we can. <laughs> we'll give it to you. <laughs> it's given freely. And you mentioned a square kilometre array. Now, that's an example of where being in the southern hemisphere is an advantage. Astronomy in general could be an advantage. Are there any other areas like that? And I am perhaps thinking, could we have something like LIGO? The biggest science story in the recent few weeks was the discovery of gravitational waves, which in its own was a very collaborative research project between probably all nations, including New Zealanders and Australians. But could something like this happen in the Southern Hemisphere? It need not be hard infrastructure. It could be soft infrastructure. For example, it could be the area of genomics, where there is many reasons why using genomics in plants, animals and humans in our part of the world can make an enormous difference. We shouldn't think only in terms of hard infrastructure, but in terms of soft. There are areas like the sub-Antarctic Islands where we have a common interest. What can we do there? There are areas like the Pacific Islands where we have common interests there. There's many things we can do together. Again, it's a matter of making sure that what we do is of value to both countries. Do you want to talk more about LIGO? I, I agree with I Peter that <laughs> You're um, for there's LIGO. much more potential than just hard infrastructure, but LIGO is some interesting hard infrastructure. You mentioned gravitational waves. Do you think the audience knows what that means? You, I'm sure, can explain it. <laughs> <laughs> so about one month ago, an announcement was made from a consortium in America, but an international consortium to which Australia contributed quite significantly, and I think New Zealand did a bit as well, that they discovered gravitational waves. <clears throat> so what is a gravitational wave? It's something that Einstein predicted over 100 years ago in 1915, so just over 100 years ago, and it's the last piece of the theory of general relativity to be proven by experiment. And what he predicted was that if really cataclysmic events occurred between stars, then instead of getting steady gravity, you'd get an oscillation in the gravity. And it turns out that 1.3 billion years ago, two massive black holes spiralled around each other and got faster and faster and faster and crashed into each other. And so 1.3 billion years ago, this explosive event emanated out gravitational waves, a distortion in space. And on September the 11th, it was discovered by a machine called LIGO, you know, a $600 million machine, not your average machine, uh, one of them in Washington State in America and another one in Louisiana. But that's not enough for them to tell where it came from. You need to be able to do what's called triangulate. You need three or four to work out where it came from. And if we built one in Australia or New Zealand, that would add massively to the capability internationally to see where these come from. Last comment on it. It's a new instrument for observing the universe. We have optical telescopes ever since Galileo used them to show that the Copernican uh, prediction that the Earth goes around the sun is actually correct. We've had radio telescopes since the 1930s. The 
gravitational wave detector, if we've got sufficient of them, becomes a gravity detector, a gravity telescope. It's a new way of looking at the universe. We will learn a lot. But there's one more bit of it. Einstein left a conundrum, and it was a giant conundrum. And it was a professor from Canterbury, Professor Kerr, who was just recognised recently with a very magnificent international prize, which was not noticed in the New Zealand media at all. Surprise. No, no, hang on, hang on, except... (laughs) Except for you. That solved that problem, and it was that mathematical solution that made all what Alan's just talked about possible. It's Nobel Prize winning science. I would not be surprised if... Can I ask you a little bit about your job? You know, in this process of the growing importance of science for business, for life, generally for everything, really, your role, you're at different positions in that in any way. You have just been appointed to the position. Sir Peter has been doing it for close to a decade, is that? Uh, Six years. Six years. (laughs) Andrew thinks it's ten. How do you you see your role? Do you see yourself as problem fixers, future casters, innovators? My role is a translator. There's a culture of science, there's a culture of policy. They're very different. One, scientists traditionally want certainty. They want to know all the facts before they make a conclusion. Politicians have to make decisions when they have to make decisions. The policy cycle is very complex. It's not as it's written in textbooks. Evidence does not make policy, but evidence informs policy. And many scientists don't understand that difference, and it's a very important difference. And my role I see as being an interpreter between the science community and the policy slash political community. At times I try to nudge the politicians along. Uh, Some of them respond well, some don't. But that's not the point. The point is we will make better policy and we will act better as a country in many different ways if we use evidence to assist the policy process because policy is made on so many other domains than just evidence alone. And I think that's one of the things the science community is slow to understand. Well, for me it's a challenge because I've only been in the job for a couple of months, just under a couple of months, and it's very fluid. The job is not particularly well-defined. And I like that. The contract is between myself and the Commonwealth Government and it's to advise the Prime Minister, the Minister for Industry and Science and other ministers where relevant to build international collaborations and to be an advocate for science. And in the current climate, it's a tremendous opportunity to advise the government on how they can come up with the implementation of their policies in such a way that the science community and the Uh, small business and the innovative community can actually take advantage of what the government's trying to give them because so often the government comes up with an idea, it could be a competitive grant scheme, but they put so many clauses around it that it ultimately becomes unattractive for companies or scientists to apply for. And so I see it as an opportunity to bring the viewpoint of the science and innovation community clearly to the government. How does this work at the other end? You know, when you think about science and society, how can you scan for what is and will be important in the future as the benefits that come from science? Do you look at what the public might need to know, want to know, want to do in the future? Should that feed back into science strategy? 
My answer to that is that um, looking for that difference that Peter was alluding to between the advice and the policy decisions, I can lead a process working with others such as our uh, learned academies, the Academy of Science, the Academy of Humanities and Social Sciences and, and Engineering, um, to do future scanning, foresighting exercises. And what we can do through that is make it very clear to the government and the public where we see opportunities um, underpinned by science and research. The final decisions absolutely have to be made by government. And that's always a struggle for me because I've spent nearly all of my life since I left university as a CEO. And believe me, going from a CEO to being an advisor is a tough step. <laughs> I, I often find myself biting my tongue. And so far, I've managed to do it at all the important occasions. I think the first point to make, Veronica, is the relationship between science and society has changed. Fifty years ago, Robert Merton, who was a famous sociologist of science, wrote, wrote in 1942, science stands apart from society and informs that. Now, too many scientists still think that, but that's not the reality. The reality is science is now embedded in society, and we use a different language. I think the issues that are emerging are those of the rapid pace of growth of scientific knowledge and its flow through to new technologies, innovation, driverless cars, artificial intelligence, all sorts of brain implants that are coming, gene editing and so forth. And the issue is not that these technologies will develop. Of course they will develop. The issue is how to use those technologies for good and limit their use for bad. And there's no technology from the discovery of fire and the discovery of, of, of the wheel that doesn't have a downside as well as an upside. What, one of the things that I think we have to work on, and both Alan and I have responsibilities in this area, is to improve the quality of the public discourse about risk, precaution, trade-offs, innovation, so that society, not us, so that society can make more informed choices about what technologies to use and what technologies to limit. Which I think brings us nicely to Vera Finkel's chocolate cake in many ways, because that is essentially about the way we, and I don't like the word communicating science, but that's what it is, you know, how we discuss this. For my part, I think science is a... Um, frame of mind, something we actually all do. If I'm asked why should we worry about science and why should we be interested in science, I struggle for an answer because I can only say, well, how could you not? How could you not be interested in science? Um, but it is something that we all do in, to some degree just by being curious, but then distance ourselves from the practice of it. So how can we, in this rather rapidly changing world where every way of communication is also changing, how can we do better? The allusion to the Vera Finkel chocolate cake, which is my mother, I mean, my mother's chocolate cake, came from a speech I gave that Veronica obviously found the text of related to communicating science. And the analogy of the cake was getting all the ingredients right. I was very motivated in that particular speech by having seen Alan Alder. Do you remember Hawkeye from MASH? Well, he's changed careers. He now has founded and runs um, a, an American-based institute for the communication of science. He got into this because he spent, I think, 11 years as the 
anchor person, the front person for a TV show called Scientific American Frontiers. And he met and interviewed 700 scientists and he was just staggered with how poorly they communicated what they were doing and didn't get the understanding. And he's now training scientists and the key message that he has, and I agree with it entirely, is you need to tell vivid stories. You need to have stories that illustrate. But there's more than that. You need to avoid certain things. You need to never be trite. If you oversimplify, you're not respecting the audience and they go away with what I call a gee whiz science experience. You know, you see the flashing spark, it's exciting, but you walk away, you've got nothing that you can remember of significance about that. And it's important to assume that the audience you're communicating to, including the people here, might have no knowledge about the topic that we're talking about, but have virtually infinite intelligence. So just because somebody's not familiar with the field that I'm trying to talk about, that doesn't mean that they're in any way less than fantastically intelligent. And if you can keep that in mind, tell them a story, explain to them really what's going on on the assumption that they don't happen to know what you're talking about going into it, but they're smart enough to understand if you convey it properly, you can communicate really well. And that's what I'm trying to do as part of my advocacy of science. If I could do it 0.1% as good as Alan Alda, I would be thrilled. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? <laughs> I would agree with Alan, but I think I'd add to that that scientists often assume a deficit model. That is, the public are not interested and the public don't understand. They are interested. They do understand. They understand the importance of science. We've just got to talk in a language that's interpretable. And that's what I mean, again, about my role as an interpreter with the politician and with society, to make sure that there is a clear understanding and how that's done cannot be insulting to the intelligence of the audience, at least with the public. We'll leave the ministers out of it. Um, the, the other point I would make is science is not about facts. Science is not a list of facts. Science is about the process, about how we establish information about the world within us, around us. And it's important to think about it as a process. And it's, one of the challenges is, 100 years ago, science was largely about facts. What's the speed of light? Information like that. How fast is the sun away from us? What's the age of the Earth? Now, because of the power of computation and the explosion of knowledge from the life sciences, science is dealing with very complex systems. Environment, ecology, human biology in a different way, social biology in a different way. And that means science is dealing with complex systems where none, not all the facts will ever be known, but we will be reducing or changing our understandings of certainties and probabilities. But because of the very issues that we can now use science to interrogate life, environment, society... Of course, the science increasingly comes into contact with the values of society and those values are often in dispute. Science cannot resolve disputed values. That is for society to do. And again, as we saw, we see in something like GM, all the ever science in the world doesn't change people's particular views about that. 
There's different discourses that are needed to change the uh, attitudes on matters such as that. That was Sir Peter Gluckman, Chief Science Advisor to the New Zealand Government, in discussion with Australia's Chief Scientist, Alan Finkel. You'll find podcasts of the speeches they gave at the Australian High Commission on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. You can stay in touch with us on Twitter at rnz underscore science. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.